This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore, in for Sasha Ann Simons. Neighborhood segregation is a fact of life in Chicago and many other American cities. And things got that way due to policy. The status quo today flows from decisions and actions at the local, state, and federal levels going back decades. One notable Chicago example, in the 1960s, the Kennedy, the Stevenson, and the Dan Ryan all opened to the driving public, and in many ways, the roadways divided black and white Chicagoans from one another. Those highways, by the way, were put in place by then-Mayor Richard J. Daley and were funded by dollars from multiple levels of government. Back in 2017, scholar and author Richard Rothstein published his groundbreaking book, The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Here he is from a WBEZ interview at the time. Well, you have de facto segregation. It's very hard to figure out how to undo it because if a million private decisions or millions of private decisions created it, it's hard to imagine how millions of private decisions could uncreate it. Now, he along with his daughter, the housing policy expert, Leah Rothstein, are out with a sequel called Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Leah Rothstein joins us now to talk about some of those potential solutions. Welcome to WBEZ and welcome to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. Your book starts off by saying, Black Lives Matter signs aren't enough to address systemic racism and that our democracy is at risk. Why did you want to start there? Well, in 2020, after George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis, 20 million Americans marched for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations all across the country. 20 million Americans. That's more than uh, the turnout for any demonstrations for racial justice in our country's history. So, you know, and these were people from urban and suburban areas. They were Black and white. They were other ethnicities and races, young and old. And, you know, they went home and many of them put Black Lives Matter signs in their front lawns, maybe started book clubs, but didn't go a step further to do anything to address the racial disparities and racial segregation of our communities. And one reason we thought that might be is because we didn't know what to do about it. It feels like an overwhelming problem that maybe is impossible to impact. So we wanted to uh, write a book to all of those 20 million Americans and more who are interested in addressing these issues in their local communities and give them some ideas of what we can do to begin to tackle it. How much of making change comes down to restructuring policy and overhauling our systems? And how much of it comes down to people's individual decisions? Well, that's a good question. I think that the color of law that my father wrote really you know, as it's been said, it demolished the myth that our communities are segregated because of personal decisions. Um, Our communities are segregated by race because of policy, because of unconstitutional actions by our government, federal, state, local government, all levels. And so similarly, to undo it, we're going to need policy change, programmatic change, and systemic change. Now we know that we're gonna need this type of change on the federal level to to impact segregation around the country nationally, but that we don't have the federal political will to do that right now. And we can build that, that will locally in our own communities and start to impact the many, many policies and programs and systems that maintain and perpetuate segregation on the community level. And that's how we have to begin. And what can white people do to improve housing options for African-Americans? Well, we argue that to improve 
housing options for all of us to desegregate our neighborhoods, to redress the harms that have been caused by our government actions of the past that created segregation. We need to work together and create biracial, multi-ethnic groups, you know, activated, um, connected in our own communities to begin to address this locally. So that includes whites and blacks sharing leadership of these groups and beginning to take on these issues. I love to tap more into your housing expertise. What are the pressing housing problems that linger from past policy decisions that shape communities in Chicago today or other cities? Well, Chicago is, like many other cities around the country, all metropolitan areas are segregated by race today, as they have been for decades. And there's so many policies that go into maintaining and perpetuating the segregation I can give a couple of examples. I can't say that any are more important because together they they create the system we live in, all of these little pieces that, that together um, maintain this apartheid system in which we live. One example is single family zoning, which is in place in most uh, suburban communities, most predominantly white communities around the country. Actually, 75% of all residentially zoned land throughout the country is zoned to only allow for single family homes. So this means in a suburban community where over say 90% of the land is zoned to only allow one house per lot, that the um, the supply of housing in that community is limited by the to be the same as the number of lots in that community. So um, by limiting the supply of housing, you're basically ensuring that the prices remain high. Now this type of zoning is what took the place of racially explicit zoning at the beginning of the 1900s, the 20th century, which um, cities adopted to say where blacks could live and where whites could live in a city. Now, when that was outlawed, they adopted the single family only zoning, which basically did the same thing by ensuring that prices were high in a community. It priced out those with lower incomes, which were disproportionately African-American households as well as those without intergenerational wealth to be able to put towards a down payment on an expensive home, which are also disproportionately African-American families because of the policies of the past of our government that allowed white families to accumulate wealth through home ownership while prohibiting African-American families from doing the same. So that's just one example. There's many, many more. I want to stay with zoning for a minute. Uh, Those single-family homes that you mentioned tend to be in the suburbs. But can you talk about how important zoning is when it comes to where people live, work, and play, uh, including in the cities? Sure. Zoning is extremely important for all, all communities everywhere we live. Zoning tells us what uses can be used in each zone of a city. So often in urban areas where African-Americans are more likely to live, those areas are zoned to allow industry to be closer or um, factories or um, polluting industries and businesses or highways. So those communities then have more pollution, more um, carcinogens in the air. The buildings have more lead paint. So the people who live in those communities have health impacts that impact them throughout their lives. And that's as a, a result of the zoning of the, the communities where, where they live. I often find that white people are looking for some sort of 
10-point plan to erase racism, those who want to do something. And they're they're looking for something, I feel like, quick and tangible. But it's not that simple when it comes to policy. And this book has a whole host of ideas, many of them really wonky, one could argue unsexy. <laughs> I mean, we just spent sure. a lot of time. We just spent some time talking about zoning, which is super <laughs> important. But you don't really see people marching around zoning. Um, can you walk us some of uh, walk us through some of these policy ideas that you all are advocating in the book? Yeah, well, we hope we get the message across that there's a lot that can be done in the face of this overwhelming issue of neighborhood segregation. There's a lot of policies and strategies that can begin to to take it apart and to challenge and redress it. They might not all be sexy. They are policy wonky ideas, many of them, but they're important. And as people start to learn about the policies that went into creating segregation, they get to be more interested in the policies that can begin to undo them. But there's so much resistance, either by individuals, systemic, um, unjust action. How do people... Um, fight that type of resistance that happens, whether it's on a federal level or good old-fashioned NIMBYism? Yeah, we definitely address that. And we hear that concern. You know, we've been going around the country talking about this book and everybody's concerned. What do we do about the opposition? We're going to get opposition in our communities. How can we persist? Well, I mean, I want to say that we haven't ever seen advances in racial justice without having to face opposition. So we will face opposition. There will be NIMBYs, not in my backyard, people opposing any changes to zoning or affordable housing development in um, higher income areas. Now, all we can do is just, uh, you know, oppose that opposition as strongly as they oppose these advances. And we suggest and we believe that just as there is going to be vocal opposition to these advances in racial justice and racial equality, that there's just as many supporters out there. You know, the 20 million people who marched in Black Lives Matter demonstrations are out there. They live in our communities. So we just need to find them, organize them, and we have to be as vocal as the opposition will be. And that's how we'll we'll make these advances and make these changes. It's not impossible. We give examples throughout just action of communities that are doing this. I think we're all just collectively very scared of the fight, but I think it's helpful to remember that we haven't made these sorts of advances in the past without a fight. So we're going to have to be ready for it. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking with Leah Rothstein, co-author of the new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation and Act It Under the Color of Law. It's a sequel to the 2017 book by her father, the scholar Richard Rothstein, called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. We've talked about the harm. We've talked about the opposition. But the book does have some real life examples where just action is working. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. There's so many. So the book is filled with dozens of examples of policies and strategies that we can begin to address locally. And for most all of them, there's an example of a community successfully implementing those strategies. So one example is in Cleveland, Ohio, where they started a right to counsel program for low income tenants who are facing evictions. Often when a tenant is served an eviction order, 
they're told to come to court, but they often don't because they don't have legal representation. They may not have time off work to go to court. Often nothing good will come of them showing up at court anyway, because landlords have legal representation and usually the judges are rubber stamping eviction orders, approving them without much thought. But this program in Cleveland, it was a um, collaboration between the United Way and the Legal Aid Society there. They adopted a program where every low-income tenant who was faced with an eviction got a free uh, attorney to represent them in their eviction proceedings. And as a result of this, and this is true across the country in places that have adopted right to counsel ordinances, when when these tenants have um, representation, the chances of their being evicted go down by a lot. And by being able to keep an eviction off of somebody's rental record, it makes it you know, a lot easier for them to find units in the future and to continue to have safe housing in the future. Oftentimes, also, these attorneys can help tenants um, access uh, publicly available funds to help them pay for back, back rent that they may have missed or help address maintenance issues in the unit. So they, they just help increase stability in neighborhoods. And we argue this is a strategy that is an important one to adopt in communities that are gentrifying, where... Um, you know, in, investments are increasing in the lower income neighborhood, people of higher incomes are moving in, prices are rising. Often landlords use this time as an opportunity to evict their lower income tenants so they can bring in higher paying tenants after their low income tenants are gone. So they try to evict them on false pretenses or, you know, fail to keep up with maintenance to just drive the tenants out. So these right to counsel programs can help um, stave off some of that displacement that can happen when gentrification is occurring. So that's one example of many, many more in the book. Which ones really excite you? Hmm. <laughs> I Well, I have this story that I tell that I've written about in a Substack column we have because it occurred after we finished writing the book. But it's a great example of what I was talking about earlier about how, yes, we'll meet opposition, but it's possible to find just as many supporters as there are people who oppose advances in racial equity and affordable housing in our communities. It's an example um, from Silicon Valley, a community, very exclusive, very expensive community that um, started to build a base of support for understanding how their community came to be in the affordable housing crisis it's in, how it came to be predominantly predominantly white, that it wasn't an accident. They developed a training um, workshop for their neighbors that taught you know, the timeline of the government actions that went into segregating their community and perpetuating that segregation and then ensuring that the community's house values remained so high that nobody could afford to live there, you know, aside from people who've lived there for a long time or from a very affluent people in the area who happened, you know, who were more often white than others. So they developed this understanding of what got them there. And they developed some shared values around inclusion and diversity in their community. And then there was an affordable housing um, development proposed by the local school district because teachers couldn't afford to live in that community either. And a third of them left their jobs every year because of the housing affordability issue. So a school district um, proposed uh, housing development for teachers and some neighbors opposed it and put a measure on the ballot that would have stopped this development and 
basically made it almost impossible to build any affordable housing in the city in the future. And because this group had already been talking about these issues, it understood that this ballot measure was one in a series of policies and practices that just maintained their segregation and exclusivity and kept people out of their community that they didn't necessarily want to keep out. So they launched a campaign to defeat the measure and they went door to door. They talked to all their neighbors. They found even more support, even where they thought they wouldn't. And they ended up defeating the measure. So now the, the teacher housing will be built and now they have an e even larger base of support to continue to work on housing issues in the future. So I like to say, if this can happen in Silicon Valley, it can happen anywhere. It just takes this effort of talking to each other, learning about our history, developing shared values, and, and just continuing to talk to our neighbors and doing that slow, methodical work of organizing them. Affordable housing is such a dirty word that I've seen communities here change it to workforce. So that's pretty amazing to hear that housing for teachers, <laughs> you know, not a low income group, certainly working people in an expensive area met so much opposition. That's right. I mean, we'll find opposition to all of it, you know, and I think that you bring up an important point that the term affordable housing I think is a misnomer. We we tend to think of it as housing for the lowest income families, households in our communities. That's how the term has been used. But, you know, as we know in communities across the country, housing is unaffordable to middle income families and households like those teachers in Silicon Valley. They're not lower income or, um, you know, low wage workers. These are middle income families that also can't find housing that's affordable for them. So I think we need to be careful how we use the term affordable housing. And we like to use it to um, to mean housing that's affordable to all income levels in a community. I had the pleasure of doing a public event with your father when he was in Chicago in 2017. And one thing that came up on the panel was this tension about how to advocate for improving black neighborhoods. Segregation is about resources, not just living next to white people. Um, but some African-Americans feel like, well, just improve our neighborhoods. We don't care about segregation. Um, but then there's like, well, black neighborhoods are just undervalued in this country because of the way our housing system is set up. Can you talk about how you all address the resource issue for black neighborhoods? Yeah, well, we we think it's equally important to desegregate white neighborhoods as it is to increase resources in under-resourced black neighborhoods. You know, the concentration of poverty in lower-income African-American neighborhoods is a consequence of segregation. And so if we're concerned with redressing segregation, which we are, we're concerned with not only desegregating white neighborhoods, but addressing the consequences of segregation in African-American neighborhoods. So we devote a lot of time in our book to policies and strategies that can increase resources in those segregated African-American neighborhoods. But then we also understand that when you do that, um, those with higher incomes will want to move in. And it's, it's in inevitable. It's um, unreasonable to think that we can increase investments in those neighborhoods and that and they'll remain all African-American. It's inevitable some white families will want to move in. Um, gentrification will occur. So we need to couple those um, increased investments and policies and strategies with those that attempt to prevent some displacement that will occur in that community when um, investments increase. Chicago is featured throughout the book, and Chicago is notorious for its housing policies and being a test case and test ground for uh, policies that fanned out throughout the country. 
Um, but instead of rehashing those policies that maybe a lot of our listeners have heard about, what are some good things that Chicago and the surrounding areas are doing that you learned? Well, we talk about Tanika Johnson, an artist in Chicago who um, started a project called the Map Twins, the Folded Map Project. So she took the unique layout of Chicago. As you know, it's on a perfect grid. She folded the map in half and the north side of a street would sit right on top of the south side of the street and the houses on those streets would sit right on top of each other when the map is folded in half. And she took photographs of the the houses she called the map twins to show that the houses themselves weren't that different on the white side of town and the black side of town, but that the surrounding neighborhoods and context in which the houses were in were very different. So she developed an exhibit about that. And then she went on to introduce herself to the residents of those houses and ask them if they wanted to meet their map twin. And many of them did. And so to be involved in her folded map project, they agreed to meet their map twin and take their map twin on a tour of their neighborhood and tour their map twins neighborhood. And through doing that, they learned that they had a lot in common, that they weren't very different, but the neighborhoods they lived in were very different. And they learned about those neighborhoods. Many of them hadn't been to the other side of town, even though they'd lived in Chicago their whole lives. So from this, they then developed block twins. So larger groups of people who were connected and would have block parties and neighborhood beautification efforts. So we like to use this as an example. It's a fun story. It's a great um, success story for building social relationships across race. And we advocate in Just Action that to begin to build these these local groups and movements to redress segregation, we need to develop cross-race relationships and we need to develop um, committees that are biracial and multi-ethnic to take on these issues. And so we use this story from Chicago as an example of how it's possible to do that. It takes a little extra effort, but we can sort of come together across what divides us and learn that we have a lot in common and then we can work together towards solutions and towards change in our in our communities. Tanika's work is amazing, and she's been on WBEZ many, many times over the mm, years. Great. Um, so finally, I want to ask you, what was it like writing this book with your father? <laughs> um, it was surprisingly easeful and successful, I would have to say. <laughs> he started asking me to help him work on this book about two years before I finally agreed. <laughs> so um, I wasn't sure that it would go as easily as it did, which is why I resisted for a little while. But when I finally came around and when we started working on it, it actually was a great collaboration. It was a great opportunity for us to work together and get closer. And I would have to say for myself, the biggest gift of doing this with him was just being able to see up close the impact he's had on this country, on people and communities across the country with the color of law. It's been amazingly impactful to people individually and collectively. And by working with him on this book, I've gotten to see that up close and that's been really special. We've been speaking with housing policy expert and author Leah Rothstein. Her new book, written with her father, Richard Rothstein, is called Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Leah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.